This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Do you long to understand the Bible in a deeper way? The ESV Study Bible was created by a diverse team of leading Bible scholars and teachers and features a wide array of study tools, including extensive study notes, topical theology articles, Bible character profiles, and more, making it a valuable resource for serious readers, students, and teachers of God's Word. Pick up a copy of the ESV Study Bible wherever Bibles are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. In today's rapidly changing culture, ancient liturgical tradition is not only biblical, it's essential. In Crisis of Confidence, Carl Truman analyzes how creeds and confessions can help the Christian church navigate modern concerns, particularly around the fraught issue of identity. He contends that statements of faith promote humility, moral structure, and a godly view of personhood, helping believers maintain a strong foundation amid a culture in crisis. Pick up a copy of Crisis of Confidence wherever books are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Books, presenting Assured by Greg Gilbert, a book on discovering grace, letting go of guilt, and resting in your salvation. Learn more at bakerbookhouse.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a talk by Justin Buzzard on how pastors can equip their people to live out their faith in the workplace. It was recorded at our 2018 West Coast Conference in Los Angeles. My name is Justin Buzzard. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I'll tell you a little bit about me, then I'll ask a little bit about you, and then we'll go through some, some content together. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor in Silicon Valley. I uh, just had my 40th birthday, 40 years old, married to my wife, Taylor. We've been married 15 years. We, we have three sons, three boys that are uh, 12, 10, and 8. And, um, you know, kind of my, so we're going to be talking about work. So I'll talk a little bit about my background with, with work. I grew up originally in a blue collar family. My dad was a truck driver and we lived, uh, in, in the Sacramento area, just kind of a blue collar neighborhood truck driver. He's finding his way. But when I was a young kid, we got robbed and my dad uh, was very mad. We got robbed and like everything was taken. They took my piggy bank and smashed it and even stole what was in my piggy bank that took everything from our home. My dad was furious. And so he started learning about alarm systems, how alarms work. And he started on the side, a small alarm company business that then turned into a large business. And so he's this entrepreneur. He leaves truck driving, starts the alarm company, begins to be successful with that. Uh, and so if I, if I start thinking back, where did I start getting my first ideas about work? It was watching my dad kind of transition from truck driver to starting a company out of nothing and the company growing and, and taking off. Um, I then kind of entered um, college with a couple of different ideas of what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to either uh, be a teacher, a high school history or English teacher, and also coach football, or I wanted to start my own adventure travel company business and take people on these adventures around the world, or I wanted to be a pastor. And God continued to call me towards this direction of being a pastor. So I've been living in the Bay Area since 2002, and I've pastored Garden City Church, a church that I planted uh, seven years ago, started the church. We had just three people and $3,000 and this dream of impacting Silicon Valley with the gospel in a fresh new way. And um, as I'm a pastor in Silicon Valley, uh, I just am very passionate about my people in their church and about their work and about what they're doing and about what they're spending so much of their week uh, doing. And so that's why I love to talk about work and, and putting our, our faith to work. And so what, what I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be sharing sort of six um, Six ideas, six concepts, six themes to pay attention to with putting your faith to work, tying those to, to about six texts of scripture and talking about some practical tips and then have some time for Q&A at the end, which I think might be the best part of this whole thing, just getting to interact and talk about stuff. First, I want to kind of know a little bit about you, though, so I know kind of this audience that I'm speaking to. Uh, how many of you are pastors? Raise your hand if you're a pastor. Okay, so maybe the half, half the room. What what does some of the rest of you do? So so I know what you do. Let's hear some ideas. Software developer, Software developer. great. Certified public accountant. Certified public accountant. Yeah. 
Literacy ministry, great. One more. Nursing, great. Okay, good. So that's helpful. So, so that you know, I, the way I originally kind of conceived and geared this talk was thinking, okay, I bet it's going to be mostly pastors in the room, and I'm going to be trying to equip pastors for what they do in leading their churches. Um, but, but no one kind of the makeup of this room, all this content, and I'll keep gearing it as I speak, uh, will hopefully like serve you as you think about what you're doing in your workplace and as you think about shaping culture with your friends uh, in your church um, to have a church community that's more in tune with the workplace. Okay, so so let me let me pray and then and then we'll we'll get going. Father, thank you for everyone who's gathered in this room. Everyone in this room is created in your image, uniquely created in your image to use their wiring and their gifts and their strengths to glorify you and to do good work in this world that um, makes an impact and loves their neighbor. And so I thank you for the certified public accountant in this room and for the nurse in this room and for the pastors in this room for the software developer in this room, Lord, and for all the other jobs and callings that are represented here. Um, would you speak to us in this time that we have together? I pray that there would, would be at least one uh, insight, one piece of truth that you want to pierce our hearts and pierce our stories with, and that we would leave this room changed by, by that truth, and it would make a real impact in our work and in our leadership and in our influence. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to walk through these six principles. I'm going to do it so my talk is like this Monday through Friday thing, what they assigned me to do. So think of the, I'm attaching these today. So day one, I like to think, who thinks of Sunday as the first day of the week? Okay, I, I do that because I'm a pastor and that's how I start my week and that's how my calendar works. So I'll think about Sunday as the first day of the week. So this is your, this is the Sunday insight. We're going to go Sunday through, through Friday here. So Sunday, let's talk about the origin, the origin of work and let's get a definition of work. Let's talk about the origin of work and let's get a definition of work. Uh, a lot of you, when you were young, you started thinking through this question or you were asked this question. Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? How many of you are what you wanted to be when you grow up? How many of you did, did, did it turn out that way? All right. I see six, seven, six, seven hands. Sounds great. What, what are you, sir? Whoa. And you wanted to be that when you were young. That's amazing. Wow. Amazing. Incredible. Okay. I saw another, another, let's get one more hand that was back here in the very back. What, what are you, sir? Cabinet maker. Amazing. So you were young and you wanted to be a cabinet maker and you are I I incredible. So that's one of the first questions um, that we kind of remember being asked. I'm sure we were asked other questions when we were really little, but we're maybe five, six, seven, and we have memory of being asked that question. And I think that's um, something to really think through scripturally. Okay, work is a huge part of our lives. Uh, if, like me, you started working when you're about 15 and could get that work permit, uh, and you know, I want to work. I want to work till I'm 70 or so. We'll, we'll see what, what happens. That means 55 years of, of work. So much of your life is going to be spent working. It's a massive part of, of our lives. The problem, and the problem that kind of sets up this entire talk, is that many people in our churches, uh, what they do, what they spend 50 or so hours of their week doing, they, they don't see a strong connection between it and the scriptures. They don't see a strong connection between it and Sunday morning when you're gathered in worship. They don't see a strong connection uh, between the preaching pulpit. And uh, not only do they not see that connection, uh, many people just feel really, really alone in, in, in their work. So hopefully everything that we're talking about will, will speak to that. When you open your Bibles and you, you get into the book of Genesis and have your Bibles handy because we're going to get into them in a second, um, you start turning the first few pages of our Bible and you right away see God is a worker. God, God's working. He's doing work all over the place. He's a work and he's doing all kinds of work. Look at all the kinds of fields of work that God is in. He's into astronomy as he's creating the stars and the lights. He's into marine biology as he's creating the seas and the fish that are in them. He's into the arts as he creates beauty. Uh, he's a, he's a zookeeper taking care of the animals, creating the animals. He's doing legislation as he is creating uh, framework and law for, for humans. He's doing venture capital as he's giving resources to humans to use and to develop and to work with. He's an electrician. Let there be light. 
God is doing all kinds of work. And so we are a people created in his image. So when we, when we want to start talking about the origin of work, sometimes people mistakenly think, hey, work came after the fall. You see this curse on work. No, God is a worker. He's always been a worker. Our Bible opens with the first way we really begin to get to know God is as a creator and as a worker. And we are created in his image to work. And if you look at the work that God is doing, um, our world today, like I'm in Silicon Valley, where it's increasingly white collar, uh, so much of the work that is being done. But God's beginning of the Bible, he's doing just so much blue collar work. Uh, he, he's doing gardening. His hands are in the dirt and he's getting dirty and he's creating. The Bible gives wonderful dignity, wonderful dignity to all work. Okay, a verse to look at. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Does that, that sound okay? Okay, let's, let's try that. Okay, so Genesis 2.15. Of all the verses we're going to look at today, this might be the most important. I think there's so much here in this verse. Uh, I wrote a book on marriage called Date Your Wife, and it's really just unpacking this verse for marriage. Here, I'm going to talk about it with work, not marriage. So Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Let's pay attention to those two verbs, to those two uh, commands. Work, that's the Hebrew verb avad, which is also translated as, as cultivate. God put the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate. And then to keep, uh, shamar, which can also be translated to tend or to guard. So God creates the first man. God the worker creates the first man in his image as a worker. And his job is to cultivate and to tend the garden so that he and so that others can flourish within this garden. And I believe that this is a paradigm for work, kind of this image of gardening that uh, we're meant to really take from the scriptures and that shows up and again and again throughout the scriptures, this idea of gardening. So let me, let's me let get the first part of a definition of work that I think um, is really helpful and really useful and you can use in your life and you can use in your churches. Uh, so it's this, work is cultivating the raw materials of a particular domain for the flourishing of others. Work is cultivating. So we're taking that straight from the text, Genesis 2.15. Work is cultivating the raw materials of a particular domain for the flourishing of others. So Adam had to take the raw materials of the garden and cultivate them and develop them so that the garden would flourish, so that Adam would flourish, so that his soon-to-be wife, kids, family, uh, offspring would flourish. And so we can think about all of our work like gardening work. What a good gardener does is they tend to the garden, they cultivate the garden, they guard the garden so that life can flourish there. So back, the gentleman in the back, a cabinet maker, He's taking the raw materials of wood and, and bringing his tools together, and he is creating cabinets that can house and can store things so that life can flourish. I think about just some of the guys in my life group and my church who are in very different fields of work. This is what they're doing. Uh, Max, who is a musician, he's taking the raw materials of sound, and he's organizing them so that the music he and his band make would sound good and would cause life to flourish. I think of Mike, who's an engineer at Google working in the robotics field. Uh, he is taking all of his engineering knowledge. He is taking mechanical things. He's taking hardware. He's taking sensors. He, he, he's taking artificial intelligence concepts, putting them together so that companies can use this technology so that their companies can flourish. Uh, think about Chris, an entrepreneur in that group, who took his idea of, I want to start a security company, and he just starts with the raw materials of an idea and sees an opportunity and sees a problem to solve, and he's put that together, and he's put people together, and he's created a real company. Or I think about my wife, who's a stay-at-home mom, who does really hard, really meaningful work as a stay-at-home mom, and she's taking the raw materials of three crazy boys who are running all over and just an open day and what's before her, and how can I organize this? so that life can flourish. Paul, who wrote so much of our New Testament, 
We can tend to think of this guy as a very spiritual guy. Read, read the scriptures. Paul's often talking about prayer. I'm preaching through Ephesians right now, and he's talking about all that is going on up in the heavenlies and put on the armor of God. Let's remember, though, Paul is also such a deeply physical guy. Paul was a tent maker his whole life. Paul's writing Bible, Paul's planting churches, and he's working with leather, and he's making tents, and he's making materials that will help people, will care for people. And, and, and he came a Jew with a Hebrew mindset that did not have this Gnostic distinction between you know, spiritual world and, and physical world. It's all deeply, deeply connected. Um, I, I also want us to, th- so, so in your church, uh, and, and with your friends, I'd encourage you, make sure your church just never says the phrase, like, do you go to church? Like, go to our church, go to the Sunday service. Talk instead about being the church, being the church all week long. I'm always telling that to my church. We want to be the church all week long in our city. Our Sunday gathering is super important, and we put a bunch of stress and emphasis on that. But so is our scattering throughout our city all week long, not just when we're sharing the gospel with someone or praying, but when we are doing doing work all week long. We're doing something deeply, deeply biblical uh, that we're called to and that makes a real difference in our world and that gives God glory. Um, the, the, what I'm going to spend the most time on is this first point. Others will, others will be shorter. Uh, I want to get to the second part of this definition of work. We also have to think about the master-servant relationship when we're thinking about work. All your work is done in service to your master, the, the living God. And this theme also shows up throughout Scripture again and again. Uh, this word that, that is translated here uh, as work is also often translated in the Scriptures as, as serve. Uh, let's look at two more verses in Genesis chapter 2. Look at Genesis 2 verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, continuing into verse 8. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God God formed the man, created the man, then he put him in the garden. And we see this again in verse 15 that we already looked at. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we're seeing right at the start of the scripture this paradigm of this master-servant relationship where uh, God is the master in this relationship. He creates his servant, and he puts his servant where he wants his servant to be. He puts his servant in the garden, and he gives a clear calling uh, to the servant to be obedient, to follow his will, to work the garden, to keep the garden, to serve, to serve the master. And I see, as I work with people in my church, so much of their stress comes down to a misunderstanding of this master-servant relationship, especially as I work with young people in my church who are trying to figure out their callings and and what to do with their work. Um, The master's responsibility is to put the servant where he wants the servant. The master's responsibility is to give the servant everything that he needs to do his will. Uh, The servant's only responsibility is to be faithful and obedient where the master has put him. So God created the garden. He took man where he was and put him in the garden. He sent sunshine to the garden. He sent rain to the garden. And the the servant was never responsible to do his master's job and figure out the future and do everything to provide for himself. He's supposed to trust his master and just be faithful and obedient where the master has put him. So to get a part two to a definition of work, it's this. Faithfully serving where the master has put you and promises to resource you. Faithfully serving where the master has put you and promises to resource you. You and the people in your churches need to have a God-sized understanding of your work and that God cares about your work more than you ever could because God cares about this world and other people more than you ever could. And the cabinets that you make and the software that you develop and the nursing care that you provide and the literacy training that you provide, our, our world desperately needs that. And so if God has put you in those fields of work, he will care for you there. He will resource you there uh, until he places some kind of perhaps new calling on your life and wants to put you into a different field. So with each of these, I'm going to give you kind of these, these theological ideas, these principles, these themes, and some texts, and then just a few tips. A few, they, they told me I'm supposed to give some practical tips, some practical tips. So uh, just if, if you're, even if this is kind of geared to if you're a pastor, but even if you're not a pastor, you just do this in your, in your small group, your church, with people, influence your church in this way. Um, 
just keep teaching people these ideas of Genesis 2. Uh, that, that, that in this paradigm of gardening, that all work is so deeply valuable. All work is this gardening kind of work. You can, I'm sure there are some jobs that don't glorify God. We can all think of a couple right now that are like, no, that's, that's not good. You don't do that. But, but pretty much any work has tremendous dignity to it that you're, you're, you're taking these raw materials, you're cultivating them, you're, you're helping other people through your, through your work. People, a lot of people need help, they need stories, they need, they need help connecting the dots between the, how their work is meaningful and the impact that it's making in the world. So, so do that for yourself and do that for other people. I mean, I'm always, I'll talk about my visits in the workplace with people, but people are often saying to me, man, Justin, I wish I had your job. You're a pastor, your work just seems so meaningful, it seems so important. And I'm always trying to deconstruct that with people. And oftentimes I'm looking at what they do. I'm like, man, I kind of wish I had your job today. I wish I was doing what you're doing. It looks really cool. And I'd rather be, be doing that. You got to help people connect the dots between their work. Um, and then just constantly show people and remind yourself, if you need this reminder today, that your work is maybe the primary way you glorify God uh, in your life. Like, yeah, we want to have a thriving marriages if we're married. All that's super important. Be great parents if we're parents. But you're spending like so much of your time each week working. And that's a profound and primary way you glorify God in your work. So, so teach that. Share that. Um, let's, let's move on to the second. Let's move on to Monday. Okay, Monday. Now, this is where we got to talk about the thorns of work and these ideas of overworking and underworking. So if we just stopped with what I've said, we'd say, okay, great, work is, work's incredible, work is so important, work, there's great dignity to all work, I'm, ex I'm excited to work. But if we want a biblical theological understanding of work, uh, we don't have to read too far in our, in our Bible, we get to Genesis 3, and really quickly we see that, um, man, work, work is hard. It's not just that work is designed of God and, and wonderful, work is hard. And we quickly see in our Bibles and in our own experience that to really do theology, to do psychology, to understand human personality, uh, people are very different. We're, we're created in the image of a uh, magnificent God, and we all uniquely reflect him, and we're all wired really pretty differently. Um, so let me just, uh, this is oversimplifying, but in your context, uh, maybe in this room, uh, in your church, you're generally going to run into two types of people. You're going to run into overworkers and underworkers. Overworkers and underworkers. How many of you would say you're an, you're an overworker? You just you just kind of overwork. Yeah, that's 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 me too. How many would you say you're an underworker? Yeah. See, and that's like harder to admit too. Like in our in our culture, overworker like oh yeah, I overworks, underwork. Yeah, you're just lazy. Um, it's harder. Not saying not saying that about you guys, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm in Silicon Valley, so I, in my church I'm dealing with like no one moves to Silicon Valley to rest and for cheap housing and to just chill out. They move there for you know for jobs. They move there for work. So I'm dealing more with overworkers uh, in my church. If my church was in Las Vegas, maybe I'd have more like underworkers, and my messages would be a little different to them. Um, look at Genesis three. Genesis chapter 3, familiar text, but let's look at it again, starting in verse 17, God speaking to Adam uh, after the fall. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Never let anyone tell you that Genesis 3 says God curses the man. He never does. God curses the serpent uh, and he curses the ground, but there's, never a, there's, there's uh, discipline the man and woman, but there's no cursing the man. Hebrew to curse is, means there's going to be like an, an end to this. Eventually, like the life doesn't continue. Um, okay, so where were we there? Uh, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough day for Adam to hear that. I mean, he's, he only works. He's like, man, Monday's going to be super hard. Like, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to going back to, to work on Monday. What this is telling us is work has thorns, right? We're, there, there, there's thorns. This garden, that was, it was all pretty great. The gardening work Adam was doing, now there's, now there's thorns in the garden. Now there's difficulty in the garden. And so some people in your church are going to have a more flowery view of work, a more just 
totally optimistic view of work, that work can become this utopia. I deal with that all the time in my city. Everyone moves to Silicon Valley to be really successful, to have the great, the next great startup. Everyone in my church, I mean, they're, they're at Google, they're Apple, they're Facebook, they're Netflix, they're starting new companies, they're doing all these things. Um, and they think it's gonna be amazing. Like, how many, have any of you ever like, visited a, like Google in Silicon Valley and have seen that context or seen that world, that company? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's a playground. Like, people get paid really well. They, all your food is free. Like, I was there last week visiting someone from my church. Rooftop gardens, rooftop basketball courts, uh, pool, fitness center is amazing. There's, like, the meditation room. There's all the food you could ever want. Like, it's incredible, right? And so if you have that view work and then you go into a workplace like that starting out, you start thinking, oh, my gosh, like, I've got it made. I, it, work can just be amazing. But the reality is jobs are hard. Like sometimes I'm talking to people in my church and hearing about their dreams for their work and what's going to happen. I just say like, you don't want a job. Jobs, jobs are hard. Like it's, it's difficult to have, to have a job. Works are hard. So if someone's got a really flowery view of the garden, their tendency is going to be to, to make an idol out of work. Their tendency is going to be, is going to overwork. Like if I can just work harder, work harder, work harder, I can finally achieve all these dreams and this work idol can totally satisfy me. So you're dealing with people like that in your church. Uh, another approach to the garden is an overly thorny view of the garden. Of Okay, God cursed, uh, cursed the ground. There's some kind of a curse going on in work we see from Genesis 3. So I'm just going to live for the weekends. I'm just going to kind of like have my job and do, you know, I'm going to do all right. But I want to kind of live for the weekends and that's, that's what I'm going to do. And I don't know that my contribution to the work world really makes that big of a, of a difference since Genesis 3. So you've got people that are thinking like that in your church. And that type of person is going to tend to underwork. And that type of person is going to tend to make an idol out of, you can name it a couple of different ways, an idol out of um, free time, spare time, just the weekend, kind of not, not working. Um, so you need to be aware of that as you're caring for people and navigating the workplace. So just some tips here are just always remember that people are all wired differently. People are wired differently. People are motivated differently. Um, people have different kind of idle structures going on in their life. So me as a pastor, I have to remember that to pastor differently when I'm dealing with different people. I have to remember that very different people are in the room as I'm pastoring. I have to remember that people are motivated very differently than me. I'm motiv motivated in very particular ways, and my tendency is to want to always preach that way, to want to always counsel that way, ask questions and lead that way. And you know, I'm just on a continual journey of learning the different ways people are, are motivated. So you know, get to know your people in your church, get to know your friends, and think about how you can best motivate them when talking to them about work. I love trying to put overworkers and underworkers together in community, in the same life group, in the same community group, that kind of a thing, uh, because a lot of great discipling happens that way. Because the overworkers are hanging out with the underworkers, uh, and they're, all, they're getting mad at the underworkers and calling the underworkers lazy, and the underworkers are getting mad at the overworkers saying, like, you're no fun, and you don't, like, just stop. And a, and a lot of times they, they can tend to balance each other out a little bit. So put those types of people, types of people together. Something we're doing in our church right now that's been really cool is we just pray for people in, in their workplaces a lot. Um, we're going through this right now. I created this for my church. It's called the Awe and Power Plan. And it's a, a Bible, it's more than a Bible reading plan, um, but it's reading scripture and it's got these three main habits we want to build in our church through it. And we have a different big prayer that we pray every day of the week uh, as a church. And the prayer, you know, you open up the plan and you start looking at these big prayers that we pray. I'll show this to you. Um, and the big prayer that we pray on Monday is it's a prayer for our people in their, in their workplace. And we're praying that God would, use, and it's not about sharing the gospel in your workplace, though I, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, it's, it's about that our, our people doing really good work that blesses our city and, and makes a, an impact in the neighborhood. And so that's been a really great thing for the church. I cycle through um, different names of different people in our church every Monday, and I'm praying for them specifically in their, in their work. And just knowing that our whole church is doing that for our church body has been really good. Okay, so that's Monday. Let's get to Tuesday. So Tuesday, let's talk about identity and work. Identity and work. This is where so much of the uh, tension is for so many of us. This is um, how... Our culture and the default nature of our hearts 
uh, tends to find our identity, tends to build an identity based on achievement. Okay, even, even that question we first started talking about, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's, that's, that's an identity question. What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, um, we have a cabinet maker in the back, but that's not his identity, right? He's an identity, he's, he's a son of God. He's a beloved child of God. Whether he made a great, you know, series of cabinets this last week or, or not. And, and, and so it starts young with that question for people. What do you want to be when you grow up? And you think, I've got to grow up and I've got to achieve this and this, and then I can finally be this thing. But the scriptures uh, wonderfully liberate us from that. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Hopefully it's a verse you know really well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Definitely have this underlined in your Bible. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that. Before the Bible starts talking about uh, who we are in this verse, it starts first talking about whose we are. Uh, we're, we're, we're his. All of you in this room, you're, you're his like when you, when you go to work next week, you've got this big, invisible, his sign across your chest. You're, you're his. You belong to God. Whatever field of work he has put you in, whatever garden he has put you in. We're, and we're his workmanship. The Greek word poema uh, means masterpiece. It means work of art. You're, you're his masterpiece. And you're his unique masterpiece. Just... You've all probably meditated on Psalm 139, that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. Like you're, you're wonderfully made. God wonderfully designed you and made you uh, with unique purpose. Um, we're his unique workmanship. We're his workmanship. And, and what are we created for? Like if you, after this session, if you went and you had coffee with God and you were sitting, sitting with God and you're saying, okay, God, like, what am I created for? You know, and if God was about to answer this question for you, you'd be sitting on the edge of your seat. Like, okay, what, what am I created for? What's the, what's the purpose of my life, God? And what he, what he would say, if he was speaking Greek, he'd say, ergois agathois. If he was speaking English, for good works, is what he'd say. You're created for good works. And don't hear this in just like a religious way. When Paul is saying this, created for good works, he means everything that's to follow in the book of Ephesians. And if you're familiar with it, once he gets into chapter 4, he starts talking about a tremendous variety of good works. Uh, what we do with our speech, our character, our bodies, sex. He starts talking about marriage. He starts talking about the workplace. He starts talking about all kinds of things. But, but, but Paul, again, the Hebrew, the tent maker who's still doing tent stuff right, right up about to the time of his Roman imprisonment before writing this, uh, he, he's thinking about what, he, he's not thinking about the Ephesian church. He's not thinking, okay, this is like an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday, what you're created to do. He's not thinking about a church service. He's thinking about these people who were being the church all week long in the city of Ephesus. He's thinking about what they're spending so much of their life doing. They're created for good works. So, that's your purpose. That's what you're created for, and your church needs to know that. And what you're doing is you're joining the master. Again, get to get to the master-servant paradigm here. You're joining the master in work that he's already created, in a path that he's already created for you. Because what Ephesians 2.10 says that is amazing. I, I, I preached on this verse a few weeks ago, and I kept looking at, at these words, uh, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I kept going, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? How do I preach this to my people? What does this mean? Then I just realized, oh, it just, it just means what it says. God, God created good works in advance for us to walk in. Like, he, he, so much thought has gone into your life. So much thought has gone into your life. God cr wonderfully created you, and he's wonderfully redeemed you as his workmanship. And he's created in advance these good works he, he has for you to walk in. Just in, in, incredible. So God, God calls. He's the caller. And we're, and, and we're the walker. God calls. We walk. He calls us into certain work. And we walk with him. 
in that work. And he rarely gives us detailed instructions uh, in that. You know, God calls Abram, Genesis 12, and Abram has to walk to a land that God's going to show him. He rarely says, like, you are to be uh, a nurse, you are to be a cabinet maker. Sometimes he gives it gives us that. There's, there's a journey involved with that. So, so just some tips on, on this point, identity and work. Just constantly remind people of their Ephesians 2.10 identity. You know the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians for the first three chapters. I, I've been reminding, I think I preached my 10th or 11th sermon on Ephesians on Sunday, and I'm reminding my church every single week. You guys know this, the first three chapters are all just theology, doctrine, like this is who you are in Christ. It's just grace coming at you like this huge snowball down a hill just slamming you, just grace, 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 grace. It's all about our identity in Christ. Then you get into the second half of the book and it's the uh, imperatives, it's the commands of how to put this faith into, put these realities into action. And I'm reminding my church every week, at some point in my sermon, I just say, church, just remember, you haven't had a single command coming at you yet. God's just telling you who he is and who you are. And you're just you're just being told to just marinate in this grace. So, what we tend to do as people is we tend to read the book of Ephesians backwards, and we think, let me if I can just do chapter six well and chapter five well and chapter four well and do my work well, do this well, clean my act up here, really obey well here, then I'll have this identity of being a saint, of being a beloved child of God, uh, and and that's just not that's just not the gospel. Okay. Not the gospel. So remind people of this Ephesians 2.8 identity. Uh, people are always trying to work for an identity rather than from their identity that's been given to us in Jesus. And just rem- remind your church that everyone's got these diverse callings. Okay, People have very diverse callings. Think about the Ephesian church. Like It was totally radical in the first century world all the different people that came together in the church. You, people were separated by ethnicity, people separated by Jew-Gentile, separated by male-female, separated by socioeconomic class, um, separated by regions they lived in. Um, the church brought all those people together. So like when I try to picture what must have been going on there in the Ephesian church, I picture you know you, you had the, the really wealthy people and you had the peasants, you had slaves, one-third of the Roman Empire was slaves. Uh, you had people that probably were formerly serving uh, the temple to Artemis. You guys know this in Ephesus. It's the, one of the seventh wonders of the world. Uh, that was probably their former way of life as silversmiths uh, making stuff for, for the temple. And you had people that had grown up around the Old Testament. Just There's so much diversity and so many diverse callings around. So remind people that we're all very different in our work. I love just what's even in this room. So many different callings here. Let's talk Wednesday. Wednesday, uh, being known and loved in your work. Being known and loved in your work. I think most people, maybe some of you are exceptions to this, but I feel like most people feel super alone in their work. And, the, and, they just, and that's because they are. I, I think most people in the church feel super alone in their work. I feel like most people come and they gather with the church on Sunday and they just feel like, man, alone. Um, man, that preacher or the person sitting next to me in the pew, they don't understand what I'm going back to tomorrow. They don't understand what I'm dealing with. They don't understand these unique challenges. Um, and I really think that shouldn't be the case. I really think that that needs to change. When I, I spend a lot of my time visiting people in the workplace, and that came from uh, where, I, where I served before I planted our church, where I served as a pastor. I got, uh, I'd get depressed every Monday because we'd be gathered on Sunday in our services and it was jam packed and tons of people. I'm just, I'm an extrovert. I'm hanging with everyone. It's awesome. Loved it. Then I would show up on this big church campus on Monday morning and there were like eight of us there. And I had this office way off in the corner and I was totally by myself. And I just like, I hate it here. Like I'm a pastor here. I've got this office here. I hate it. So I just started visiting my people in their workplace. I'm like, you work there, you work there, can I come visit you there? Can I come like see where you work? And like, cause I don't like where I work. And can I see, can I see your deal? And can we go to lunch and can we hang out? And I just realized like people loved it. People loved it. So I started doing that, I don't know, I'm 40 now. I started doing that when I was like 28 or so there. And I still do it, I do it all the time. Uh, I don't know, two, three times a week, I'm visiting people from my church in their workplace. And I always, um, Almost once a week, this happens. Like someone just, they'll just tell me, man, no one has ever visited me at work. And like sometimes these are people that have been in this company 10 years, 20 years. Like the, no one has ever, has ever done this. And 
that's one small way. And if you're not a pastor, you can do that. Just visit your friends. Uh, where I started doing this with all these people in my church. Then I realized, man, I want to do this with my non-Christian friends too, who I love so much as a way for them to see that I just love them and care about them. And I went and I, and I, and I hung out with one of my dearest friends. So, so want him to know the Lord. And I visited him at work and he was like a seven-year-old boy. Like it meant everything to him. He just thought it was so cool. He was showing, he was invite, showing me, having me meet all his coworkers, talking to him. He just like showing me everything. It was, it was incredible. So that's one of the best things you can do to help people feel known and loved in their work. I, I was noted, I was preparing for this talk and God was drawing me to this scripture. Uh, look at Mark chapter one, verse 16. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. It's, you, you know this text well. This is Jesus. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. What do you, what do you see there in that text? Maybe in light of this talk. Where's Jesus showing up at? Work. Jesus shows up at their workplace. Jesus calls his first disciples. I had never seen this until a couple days ago working on this. He shows up at their work. I think that's, he just, he, his first disciples, they're, they're fishermen. He shows up at their work. He, he knows them there where, where they're in, in, in the boat with their father and doing their fishing. That's where he, that's where he shows up. I really think I don't know, I always am thinking about Jesus and sort of the secret sauce to his ministry. Obviously, it's a, he's the second person in the Trinity. That's a pretty big deal. But um, I also just think you study the Gospels and you look at what he's doing. Like Jesus is always on, he's always like just on these long walks with his disciples, spending lots of time with them. He's always having these long meals with them. He's always having these parties. He's always like putting his disciples in really difficult situations kind of on these adventures like just go out to sea and you know see you later and the big storm's going to come and just i don't know that's a topic i'd love to explore more just sort of jesus in the workplace and long walks with jesus and feasts with jesus and adventures with jesus it, was, it wasn't classroom stuff so we really need each other and sanctification is not something that happens when we're alone sanctification sanctification isn't just about you and your bible and prayer um, it's about being in community with people, uh, being known and loved. And a huge part of your story that involves being known and loved is your work and is what you do. I mean, I'm so thankful for elders and other friends of mine who are pastors where I feel like I can really bear my soul about my work and can be really known in that. And just know that God knows what he's doing and giving you your particular church that you're at. Uh, God did not, there's not like, oops, I put you as a pastor of this church, or oops, you're a, a software developer in this church. God knew what he was doing, and you're, you're there by design, and he wants to shape you there, and he wants to use you to shape that place. So some tips. Um, if you're a pastor especially, but anyone, visit people in their workplace. Um, I make that, again, a huge priority. I do it two to three times a week and I just go through our list of members and like I, I schedule, I, I'm the proactive one with that. Um, I ha have a gal on my staff that does that scheduling for me and I, and I just tell her like, I, I wanna go to lunch with that person, that person, that person, that person, just, just, just do it, just make it happen. Um, and then uh, my assistant last year had a good, uh, had an idea, I thought it was dumb but it turned out to be a good idea. He said, you should, you should start taking pictures of that, uh, take pictures of these visits that you do in the workplace because no one knows you do it and uh, post them. I'm like, okay, well, I'll try that. I started doing that. And like, it's like everyone just loves it. It's like the favorite thing. People in my church, they just love seeing that. People like talking about the Gospel Coalition asked me to write an article about it because they saw me doing that. That's probably why they have me talking about this here. Um, so do, do visit people in, in, in the workplace. Um, highlight on Sunday the different kinds of work people are doing in your church. Highlight that. That's a great thing to do. Pray for people in their workplace. Have a little, you can have a little two-minute interview. Have um have a public school English teacher in your church come up and talk for two minutes about the work that she's doing and then pray for her. Um, just highlight what people, have them have stories of people and what they do in their work, have them be in your sermons. Have this just be a, 
something that's part of your church culture. Highlight it. If you do church emails or different social media things, you can highlight people and the work that they do. It's a really cool. A guy in my church sent an email to our elders last week uh, saying, hey, I've really, he works at Apple. And he said, man, there's a ton of us at Apple, and I want to get some lunches together with all of us Apple people and elders. If you ever want to come and sit in on one of these lunches, you're invited. And he sent an email to 12 other guys in our church that work at Apple and then the elders too, and they're now doing a monthly lunch at Apple. And so like stuff like that, it's cool. It's happening. Like You can encourage that sort of thing uh, in, in your church. Like get, If you have some other people in the, the same company or same industry, get together, have some lunch, uh, hang out, and... And, and do it, gather different types, and gather different types of workers together. I think there's a lot of talk about diversity today in the church, which is so important. I just preached a sermon on diversity last week, diversity and unity in Christ, the end of Ephesians 2. Um, but I think in many ways, the hardest area of diversity to get and to crack in the church, at least where I live, is socioeconomic diversity. I think that's really hard. Uh, it's, it's, it's not as difficult to get people of of several, quite a few different ethnicities together, but to get people who are in very different income levels, socioeconomic status together is, is hard. So one way I'm trying to think about how to get at that is to get people who are doing very different kinds of work, white collar workers, blue collar workers, folks to, together. So I think try, try to try to do that too. Cause I also, I'm glad this Apple lunch is happening, but I don't just want 12 like Apple guys that are all paid pretty well um, hanging out in my church. I want it, I want more diversity happening there too so uh let's let's now talk about uh thursday two more to go thursday and friday thursday number five position your life for maximum fruitfulness position your life for maximum fruitfulness i also want to say as i'm talking about this too know that the fact that a lot of things we're talking about here it's it's a luxury that we can talk about them there are people in many parts of the world that can't spend a whole lot of time thinking about uh, could I have a different job? Could I position my life for maximum fruitfulness? They're just just surviving. So praise God, glory be to God, thanks be to God that we can even have a seminar like this and, and talk about this. Okay, position your life for maximum fruitfulness. Um, I mean, do you feel like you're as fruitful with your life as you as you could be, as you as you want to be? Do you feel like God is using you with your unique wiring? You don't need to be like anyone else. But with your unique wiring and desires and call of God on your life, do you feel like you're being as, as fruitful as you want to be? Like, I'm constantly frustrated with that. Like, on the, on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good. On the other hand, I'm like, man, no, I, I desire, Lord, so much more. I want to see you use me more. I feel like I, this could happen, this could happen, and I could, and I could do this. And so I wrestle with this a lot, and I think about this a lot. And it's a good question for you to think about and for you to ask your friends and ask your church a lot. Like, are you being kind of maximally fruitful with this life that God has given you? Turn to John 15, John 15, chapter 8. For the last, I want to say, five years, a week hasn't gone by where I've not been meditating on John chapter 15. It's become such an important chapter of the Bible to me. It's the very familiar, I'm the vine, you are the branches section of scripture, this call to abide, to depend on Jesus, the vine. We're just a branch. We just have to be a branch. He's the vine. But, but then verse 8 hits you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So there we're taught that God is glorified as we bear much fruit. Fruit, certainly that means character, fruits of the spirit, but it's also an echo back to Genesis, to be fruitful with the one life that God has given you. So I think God is really glorified by Max and my life group, who's young, he's 20, who is in a band that's just getting started, and he has these big dreams for the band to really take off and to really grow. His band came and they played at my 40th birthday party and they're great and I've got them on video and I'm like, I want them to make it big so I want to say, like, look, when they played at my 40th birthday party, these guys are amazing. I, I think God's glorified by those ambitions, those dreams, those hopes. I think God is glorified by Mike, the Google engineer, who has ambition and dreams to rise up the ranks in his company to do really good work with robotics there 
and to make a real impact at Google and through Google. I think God is glorified by Chris, the entrepreneur in my life group, who feels like he started this company out of nothing. Uh, it's done, check them out, Abode, they're, they're, they're a really cool company. Uh, he was able to successfully sell it. Uh, it's grown, it's been great, uh, but as he stays on as a CEO, as it's been sold, he just wants to keep charging forward and he's got big dreams for where he wants to take it. I think God is glorified by that. And I think sometimes we can be afraid as Christians to try to position our life for maximum fruitfulness. It's not that God needs our good works. God doesn't need our good works, Ephesians 2.10. But our neighbor does. Our, our, our world does. And we're created for it. We're created for it. Let's look at one more text on the same, Luke 19. Turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 13. Luke 19, verse 13. The parable of the ten minas. Calling ten of his servants, so we've got the master-servant paradigm showing up here yet again. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, three months' worth of wages, and said to them, engage in business until I come. Does that say engage in church activities until I come? No, engage in business until I come. Take these, take what I've given you, three months worth of wages. Take the resources I've given you. Take the raw materials of the garden that I've given you and engage in business until I come. And you know how the rest of the parable goes. Who's rewarded? Yeah, the person who's rewarded, that reward the most, is the person who's maximally fruitful with that investment, who engaged in business with, with the most fruitfulness, the most wisdom, uh, took it, invested it, got a tenfold return. So I feel like I could give, say a lot on this. Uh, it's a text I'm still thinking about a lot, but just give your people vision for that. Give, give, don't let your people settle. Give your people, I feel, I feel like Ray kind of, pre, kind of hit towards this in his topic a little bit. Just you know, step out in risky ways for the glory of God. But that doesn't mean just, preaching a sermon that means with whatever field of work god's called you to endeavor to be maximally fruitful with the one life that god has given you the final one friday the unfinished and the finished nature of work we have to talk about this which means we have to talk about sabbath it means we have to talk about the gospel uh genesis 2 verses 1 through 3 i won't i won't read them right now but uh, after creating the world, what did God do? He rested. God created the world and he rested. He kept the Sabbath. Uh, it, was a really, it was a really you know, busy day. God finishes his work. He blesses the seventh day. Then he rested. And this becomes a paradigm through the rest of Scripture. Again, what we see God doing in those early chapters of Genesis show up as this, as this paradigm, just like the gardening thing and the master-servant thing becomes a paradigm. God resting becomes a paradigm throughout the rest of Scripture. Shows up again in Exodus uh, chapter 20. So this is the last text I'll take you to. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the fourth commandment, I mean there's only ten commandments given to the nation of Israel. And the fourth one, and a lot of attention is given to it, is this commandment to keep the Sabbath, to cease, to stop, to rest. Why? Well, because God rested and because God wants to give the gift, this gift to these people. Uh, Sabbath is super important. Do you, do you keep the Sabbath? Do you keep a 24-hour? Let's just raise our hand. Raise your hand if you keep a 24-hour Sabbath each week. Yeah. Okay. So the rest of you just are disobeying the Bible here. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I teach on the Sabbath a lot at my church. Um, again, like if I was in Vegas, I probably wouldn't a whole lot. I'd just say, like, quit, quit keeping the Sabbath and get a job. Um, but at my church, I feel like one of the most radical ways our people can adorn the gospel is to rest. 
because no one in Silicon Valley is very good at rest. And when I teach it, people either catch the biblical vision, the spirits at work, and they love it. And they, they start keeping a weekly Sabbath and they go, oh my gosh, why did I never see this in the scriptures before? And why was I ignoring this? And what, wow. Or they say to me, I just, man, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. To which I then ask more questions. Why can't you rest? Why can't you rest? It's a good question to think about for yourself and to ask other people, why can't you rest? Sometimes I hear, well, I've just got so much work to do. I've got, I've got more work to do. I can't, I can't rest until all my work is done. Well, you're going to die with unfinished work. So don't, don't use that as an excuse. Sometimes it's just the, it's the technology reason. Just I'm always on. There's just always, I'm, I'm always on. My phone, my computer, just, I'm, I'm always on. I'm always, getting, I'm always getting pinged. And that's just a hard reality in our world. Sometimes it's, you're just always aware that the competition is better, you know? Since globalization and with technology that you have, you're always aware of someone who's doing work a little bit better than you, right? Like, I'll, I'll preach my heart out on a sermon sometime, and someone will walk up to me like, well, I heard Tim Keller preach that text, and he did a lot better, right? <laughs> 50 years ago, that, did, that wasn't a thing, right? But that's, that's a thing now. So what we're doing is, is in asking this question about rest, you're going a little deeper. Sabbath is super important, but you're going a little, a little deeper, and you start realizing that you've got people in your church who just can't rest because their identity is so deeply tied to their work. They just can't distance themselves from it. They can't ever rest. They can't ever stop. They don't trust God enough to stop their work and rest for 24 hours. Really radical that God gave this commandment to the Israelites after the Exodus because what had the Israelites been for 400 years? Slaves. Non-stop work, 24 hours a day, seven days, like just, just work, 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 work. They didn't rest. They're slaves. So this is a totally radical thing that God was giving the Israelites. So what you got to do is you got to turn up the volume on the gospel in your heart, in your head, in your preaching, in your leadership, in your relationships. Uh, there's two places you know that it says God finished his work. Genesis 2. The seventh day, God finished his work, and he rested. And then many years later, Jesus entered a restless, restless world. And here we have the servant-master relationship showing up again. Jesus is the faithful servant, serving his master, the Father. And he was put not in the Garden of Eden, but he was put in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he, is, he was contemplating the work that he was going to have to do, he was sweating blood. This, this great work he was had to do. And there Jesus, Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus was working. Jesus was working. Jesus was doing a good work there on the cross. There he was working, bleeding, suffering for you. For your sin. For your wounds. For your weaknesses. Please, especially if you're a pastor, never confuse sin, wounds, and weaknesses. Sins are to be repented of. Wounds are need to heal. Weaknesses just need grace and mercy. He died for your sin. He died for your wounds. He died for your weaknesses. He died for your identity to make you his workmanship. He died for your work. And there Jesus proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. So after I preached that text a couple of years ago, John 19, verse 30, to my church, I, I'm not really a very impulsive guy, but I was impulsive after that. I went and I got a tattoo. And I got this tattoo. And it's, it's that word, tetelestai. It is finished. And above it is an image of an anchor, an anchor cross. The early Christians often disguise the, cro disguise the cross in the catacombs as an anchor, an anchor cross. And what this is a reminder of because I'm an overworker and just 100 ideas a day and can't get to them all and just charging it. Um, it's a reminder to me that I am an unfinished man with an unfinished life, with unfinished work, resting in the finished work of Christ. So nothing can take the place of the gospel getting deeper into your heart and into your people's heart as they think about work, because rest is very connected to work. So just some tips on this. Teach the Sabbath to your people and model the Sabbath to your people. I think it's one of the best things I do as a pastor is modeling Sabbath to my people. Um, a weekly Sabbath 
For me, that's sundown Friday till sundown Saturday. Uh, we sit down to a family dinner most Friday nights, or sometimes we're out or something with people, and we sit down and we light, what's, what, how we market is we light candles. We put candlesticks on the table Friday night, and we light those candles, and it's just symbolic of us entering into 24 hours of rest, and we say a prayer, and we rest, and I say to my family, anyone else have like a last minute work you gotta get done, like you got two minutes, get it done, because I'm about to light the candles, and we're gonna Sabbath. So, so, so Sabbath, I started keeping that when I almost got burned out as a pastor like nine years ago, and it saved me. Um, Sabbath weekly, uh, Sabbath daily, have a period of time each day where you just cease from your work. That one's the hardest for me. I think I'm really good at it weekly. I'm hard at and not great at it daily. Sabbath annually, I'm passionate about that. Have annual time where you get away from your work, you vacation, you rest. Um, it takes a lot of faith to rest. It takes a lot of faith to rest. And then just keep turning up the volume on the gospel. You have to again and again look yourself in the mirror and do this in your preaching and just say to people like, who are you if you don't do anything? Like, who are you if you can't make cabinets anymore? Who are you if you can't code software? Who are you if you're not a pastor? Yeah, I de- I de- you're, you're a deeply loved son, daughter of God is who you are. You're so important. You're his. You're his workmanship. So that's it, folks. Um, thanks, for, thanks for being here. And if you want to talk more, I'll be up here for a bit. Okay. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.